Well, we are going to continue to contemplate the sufferings of Christ. And let me say this, that nothing could be more important for us than to dwell on Christ hanging on a tree. Nothing is more important than for us to consider the sufferings that he faced, to meditate on his death, to dwell on his crucifixion. Nothing is more important. And so we are in a good place right now as we continue to contemplate his sufferings. And no moment is wasted when we do this. Indeed, we should do this every day of our lives. We should contemplate and dwell on and meditate on the sufferings of Christ every single day of our lives. And so what we're doing tonight should not be new, but it is Good Friday, and so we are paying special attention to the sufferings of Christ. Now before we get to the cross, I want to begin our journey in the garden, the Garden of Eden, where we see a man named Adam and his wife named Eve, and they dwelled with God. They dwelled with God. And God gave them one commandment. You shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so right away in Genesis, we see that the consequences of sin, the punishment for transgressing God's commandment, God's law, is death. It's death. And not just physical death, but spiritual death. We see that right away in the Garden of Eden, in Genesis. And obviously we know from the story in Genesis, from this historical account, that Adam and Eve did indeed fall into sin. They transgressed God's law. They ate of the tree that they were commanded not to eat from. And sin and death entered into the world. And then when God comes to Adam and Eve, and he's delivering these further temporal consequences for their sin, he actually says to Satan in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So right away in Genesis 3, we see the death of Christ foreshadowed. Who is this he? Who is this he that will crush Satan's head and while he's crushing Satan's head will get bit by the serpent and die? It is Christ. It's, it's God. It's the God-man. It is the second Adam. The second Adam. And so we fast forward now to a second garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, where we find the second Adam in the moments before his betrayal. 
We already read the account, but if you have a Bible, I invite you to open it up to Luke 22. I want you to see what's going on here. Luke 22, 39 through 46. Luke says, And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So in the first garden, we see temptation. In the second garden, we see temptation. The second Adam, Christ, is being tempted. And what is he being tempted to do? What's he being tempted to do? He's being tempted to abandon the mission. To abandon the mission. And what's the mission? The mission is to die on a cross for sinners. That is the mission. That's why he became a man. To die on a cross for sinners. Indeed, this is the plan for the fullness of time. This has always been the plan. Foreordained before God created the universe. That he would become a man and die on a cross for sinners. And he's being tempted to abandon it. And he's in agony, extreme agony, emotional distress, so much agony, so much distress that an angel has to come to strengthen him. Why? Why is he in so much agony? Why so much agony? Why so much distress? Why does an angel need to come to strengthen him? Did we not just learn last Sunday from the sermon from Matthew 10 that we are to not fear what man can do to our bodies? Don't fear death. Don't fear what man can do to this body. Indeed, we actually learn that most of the disciples would actually die a similar death to this. Peter would be crucified upside down. Many of the disciples, Paul was flogged many times. Why so much agony? Is Christ weak? Is he weaker than the average man who has faced such a death before? Indeed, in Matthew's account of, of him praying in the garden, he says, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Have you ever faced that much emotional strain in your life? 
And Luke tells us that it's as though he's sweating blood, that drops of blood are falling from him. Is that literal? Is he actually sweating blood? Well, there's indeed a medical condition where you can actually sweat blood. It's been reported about 14 or 15 times in medical journals where when somebody is in such emotional strain, the capillaries that surround the sweat glands actually burst and blood goes into the sweat gland and you actually sweat blood. And this is possible. This can happen. It's happened before. And so, yeah, it could just be a metaphor or an image or it could actually be literal, but it really doesn't matter. The point is, he's in incredible distress. He's in in incredible agony. He's probably sweating blood. But why? Why? Why is he being tempted to abandon the mission? And here's what you must know. And here's what he knew in that moment. The suffering that was soon to take place was not primarily physical. It wasn't primarily physical. It was, more importantly, more foundationally, spiritual. The suffering that he was soon to face is a spiritual suffering. And the physical suffering is just a drop. Just a drop in the ocean compared to the spiritual suffering. Notice in the text, verse 42, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Remove this cup from me. What is this cup that he is praying to the Father? Remove it if you're willing. Remove it. I don't want to drink this cup. What is this cup? Well, throughout the Bible, God's holy, righteous wrath is called a cup. And that's exactly what's going on here. Why is Christ in such agony? Because he knows in just a matter of hours he is going to face holy, righteous wrath for sin. God the Father is going to pour out his wrath on him for sin. For sin that he did not commit. For our sin. And it's a terrible cup. It's bitter. It's horrible. It's terrifying. And if you were to taste of this cup, if you were to drink this eternal, infinite, righteous wrath, you would be in hell forever. And he's about to drink this cup. And so what's the temptation? It's not like our temptations. We're tempted to stay in our filth. We're tempted to stay in our sin to go back to our wicked ways, to gratify our flesh. Christ is pure. Stay pure 
and undefiled by sin. He's perfect. He's spotless. He's the spotless lamb. He's never sinned once. And he's being tempted to not become sin, to stay pure. Do you understand? It's not even close to our temptations. We're tempted to stay in our sin. He's tempted to stay in his perfection. But what does he say? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And then he's betrayed. And as he's being betrayed, Peter takes out his sword and he cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest. And then he says to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? He knows exactly what's going on. He's not even really thinking about the physical pain he's about to face. He's thinking about the wrath that he's going to face. He's thinking about the cup that he's going to drink. That's what's going on. In mere hours, he's going to face infinite wrath. And once he gets through this temptation and resists it, we see nothing but submission to the will of the Father. Straight-faced, calm, committed to the cross. No hysteria, nothing. He's going. He's committed. He's resolved. And so then, obviously, we read about it. He's brought to the high priest. He's brought before Herod. He's brought before Pilate. He's convicted. He's flogged. And if you know anything about Roman flogging, it's horrible. Indeed, it was illegal to flog a Roman citizen. And what they would do is it was about a, an 18-inch wood dowel, and connected to it was about five or six-foot pieces of leather, maybe eight or nine of them. And then at the end of the leather was, was lead weights, and then also at the end of the leather was shards of bone put through the leather. And so when you would get hit by this, you weren't just getting hit with one lash. You were getting hit with eight or nine of them. And the bone would dig into your flesh and it would tear away your flesh. And they would, they would hit your back of your thighs. They would hit your back, your neck, your arms, every part of your body. And it was so bad that often the back of your rib cage would be exposed and your flesh was just ribbons hanging from you. And so he was flogged. And then the soldiers make a crown of thorns. And this isn't just your average thorn. No, these are two, three, four inch long thorns. And they're pushed into his skull. And then he's told to carry his cross. And he can only carry it about a third of the way. And then Simon of Cyrene carries it the rest of the way. And then they get to Calvary. And you can just imagine how any other crucifixion victim would have responded in this moment. They would probably try as hard as they could to get away. To flee, to run. Because... If they run away and they're hit with a sword or jabbed with a spear, it would be far better than to be nailed to that cross. But he willingly 
went to the cross and got on it. And then obviously we know iron stakes probably actually through his wrists and they knew exactly the place to put them so that you wouldn't hit the artery so that you wouldn't bleed to death right away and miss the arteries and veins but it hit the main nerve going to the hand and it would send an unbearable shocking pain up your arm into your neck. Many people would go in and out of consciousness while this is happening. And he's hoisted up. And as you might know, you die by suffocation. Because as you're hanging there, your lungs don't have enough room to take in new air. And so what you have to do is you have to push up on your feet. And while you're pushing up, that, that peg in your feet is ripping the flesh in your foot. And eventually you just can't do it anymore. So you hang there and you suffocate. And all that's happening to him. That's the physical pain. But again, none of that, none of that pain holds any weight to what's going on spiritually. Because in this moment, he is under wrath. He's facing the wrath of the Father on sin. And not just one sin, not just two sins. We know from the Bible that even one sin is deserving of eternal wrath. Not just sin for one sinner or two sinners, but he's facing wrath for probably billions and billions of sinners. All in one moment. He's feeling wrath on rape, wrath on murder, wrath on adultery, wrath on bestiality, wrath on homosexuality, sexual immorality, child abuse, divorce, blasphemy, idolatry, sex trafficking. He's feeling that wrath on that sin in that moment. Do you understand? And the answer is you don't. You don't understand. You've never faced that wrath. And if you've put your faith in Christ, you will never face that wrath. You'll never feel it. You'll never know what it's like. But only if you've put your faith in him. He felt it for you. He was our substitute because God is just and he must punish sin. But he punished his son instead of us. And so we don't understand what he's feeling. We don't understand. And by God's grace, we will no, never understand if we're in him. I want to even make this point more clear that he's under wrath. Consider Mark 15, 22 through 23. You might just skip over this verse and not even pay attention to what it's saying. And it says, And they brought him to the place called Golgatha, which means place of a skull, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. What is myrrh? It's a narcotic 
And the Jews would often give crucifixion victims wine mixed with myrrh so that the pain of the crucifixion would not feel so unbearable. It would numb your nerves so that you could handle it a little bit better. But he disregards it. Because what would a narcotic do for wrath? Nothing. Why dull my physical senses if I'm under spiritual torment? So he doesn't drink the wine mixed with myrrh, obviously. Now the best description in the Bible of what is going on here and what Christ may be feeling in this moment is probably the description of the rich man and Lazarus. I'm just going to read that, that account for you. And if, you, if you're in Luke 22, you can just flip over a few chapters to Luke 16 and follow along with me. Luke 16, verses 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all of this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. That's maybe the best description of what's going on. Pure agony, pure torment, burning in hellfire. And even the thought of one little measly drop of water on his tongue seemed like it would be a relief. And that's just the description of one man in hell, and Christ is feeling that wrath on billions. billions of people for you and for me. So what would myrrh do for this? Nothing. And so finally we come to the last moments before he dies. I'm going to read from Matthew's account, Matthew 27, 45 through 50. 
Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sebektani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. He was forsaken. Forsaken by the Father. He was forsaken because, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He became sin. He bore our sin, my sin, your sin, so that we might live, so that we might be righteous so that we would not have to face the justice of God. And so, the first Adam in the Garden of Eden brought death into the world at a tree. The second Adam defeated death once and for all on a tree. That's incredible. That is our hope. That is our hope. If you have not put your faith in Christ, if you have not repented of your sin, you must do this now. You must do this now. It's the only way to escape this type of wrath. Believe in Christ. Believe in him. Repent. Let's pray.